Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Megan Burke. Megan is the author of The Fundamental Institution, Poverty, Social Welfare, and Agriculture in American Poor Farms from the University of Illinois Press. Megan, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell people a little bit about who you are and your background and what it is that brought you to this particular project. Happily. Thanks so much. I am a professor of history at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and my background is in 19th century agriculture and rural life, a graduate of Purdue University and Iowa State. So uh, it's no coincidence that I write heavily about the Midwest because it's the region I'm most familiar with uh, and I'm a little partial to, even though I'm down in Texas. Um, This book really came about as a product of my first book, which was about the child placement process and how the the reliance on local institutions for children and placing children into farm homes helped kind of evolve into our foster care system that many of us are familiar with today. And in doing the work for that book, I used a lot of poor farm records because kids were housed in poor farms. Poor farms were one of the places that placed children, at least for a little while. And so I kept looking at these records and thinking to myself, there's so much more here um, than just what I'm utilizing these for at this particular moment. Uh, and as I mentioned that to people over the years, you know, conferences and different places, uh, everyone kind of perked up and said, tell me more about these poor farms. And I thought, well, one thing at a time. <laughs> I need to finish this first thing <laughs> before I can tell you more about poor farms. But that's really, you know, this product is is really that. Me going back in to explore the full spectrum of the poor farm experience as opposed to just that little segment of the lives of children in those institutions and how that process worked. So perfect. So why don't why don't we start with just a little bit of, of maybe brush clearing? Um Tell us what a poor farm is and if it differs, if at all, from an almshouse or a poor house or a workhouse or some of the other uh, uh, kinds of uh, names associated with institutions that people may be familiar with. What's a poor farm? How should we understand it? 
those synonyms are one of the things that makes it so tricky and I think has made it really hard for other scholars to to piece apart exactly what we're talking about. They all share, in some ways, a lot of characteristics. A poor farm at its very core is an institution designed to assist in social welfare for the sick, the poor, the homeless, uh, you know, sometimes the pregnant, um, the injured, but specifically anchored to a farm as this agricultural component. Unlike a workhouse, for example, there is very little required work. So poor farms are not the kind of place um, that we would recognize as a sort of penal institution. They are not punishments most of the time. Um, Every once in a while, we'll find someone there who's serving out a sentence, but that's a rare occasion and not uh, the the norm. Um, But that idea that a poor farm is a place that has property to both grow food for its residents and to give its residents a little bit of activity or something to pitch in and help with is one of the distinguishing characteristics. They also tended to be um, smaller than, uh, let's say, an almshouse that's situated in an urban center. Um, you know, some of the most well-known almshouses in the United States housed hundreds and hundreds, upwards of a thousand people sometimes. And most poor farms, by contrast, had fewer than 50 residents at any given moment. So again, while there are exceptions, certainly there were poor farms with hundreds of people, but those are the exception and not the rule. So the poor farm tends to have a slightly more local flavor. It's a little smaller. It tends to be run more akin to, I've described it as sort of a large dysfunctional family. And agriculture is the kind of backbone of what the institution does. So can you tell us a little bit about about where did these institutions come from? What kinds of problems were they initially meant to solve? Maybe tell folks who don't know a little bit about what practices were common. Maybe tell us a little bit about uh, 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 practices of boarding out or auctioning off the poor. Um, and maybe use that as a way to talk about sort of when in history do we see the peak use of these institutions? And then we can turn our attention to the various kinds of functions they served. That's such a great question. Before the Civil War, a lot of counties handled their poor relief, which includes everything, you know, people who were sick, people who were homeless, people who were injured. They handled that through sometimes direct aid, where they would provide either a cash payment or some kind of payment in kind. We have coal, groceries, rent being paid, doctor's bills being paid. And for those people who were too injured or sick or incapable of using that type of assistance to essentially kind of self-support or self-sustain, there were boarding payments where, um, similar to if people are familiar with sort of Uh, the leasing program or pauper leasing or pauper auctions that were common during the colonial period. Uh, The leasing program is similar to that, but without the stigma of an auction. So a person would take in a poor or sick person and be paid by the county for that care. The problem that counties ran into was that that was prohibitively expensive, in some cases, I found counties spending as much of a, as a quarter of their budget on that type of relief payment. And so they looked to a different solution. And for many of them, particularly around that sort of 1870 to 1880 mark, uh, 
The answer was to build out their own institution that would save them on boarding costs and allow them to kind of consolidate all of that relief need in one place. So they would have one roof to house everyone. And the component of the farm was really meant to offset some of that expense, not necessarily through people working on it, but in the sense that a farm is a business, and so they intended to grow crops and sell crops, and they intended to use the foodstuffs that were grown on the farm to help offset the grocery expenses for the residents. So that process, it almost sweeps across the United States like a wave. So you can see states like in the old Northwest, for example, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, they are opening some form of county poor farm, many of them by the 1840s and 50s. And they are evolving over time uh, to change kind of the character and even the appearance of the institution by the time we get into that late kind of 1800 situation. But if you follow that wave farther to the West, especially, we've got counties in Minnesota and Montana and places farther West who are waiting until the 1890s, early 1900s to open their first poor farm because they finally kind of hit that threshold where they seem to have more people needing pay payments or aid, then they are comfortable paying out directly in some capacity. And so they look to, you know, what have counties before us done? And for many of them, that answer was, we're going to build an institution, we're going to put everyone there, and we're going to kind of consolidate expenses and make it a little easier to keep track of. Uh, Just the paperwork alone, (laughs) some of these places that we're paying boarding for, you know, dozens of people at any given moment and different doctor's bills was kind of a complicated and cumbersome process. And so the intention was to sort of consolidate all of that under one roof, under one set of management uh, and try to make it more affordable for the county uh, in the long run and then also make it a little bit easier to manage and administer. So these these were core public institutions, correct? Yeah, they really are. They are uh, in some states found in almost every single county. Um, so so let's let's turn a little bit to maybe borrowing uh, inside the four walls of various institutions, um, recognizing that as you point out in the book, there's lots and lots of variation both over space and over time as to to what these places are, how they function, who lives there. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to inhabit a poorhouse. Or excuse me, a poor farm. There I am screwing up the language too. No, it, you know, they used it interchangeably too. And I, I tried to be judicious in my use of it as well. It's it's a very, a very sort of uh, synonymous phrase. You know, hopefully if you were a person who needed a poor farm and needed that kind of accommodation, you were in a county where... Uh, County officials were judicious about their uh, expenses and had selected a really good manager. It was one of the things that I found that I I don't know what I was surprised by, but I think I was impressed by the impact that it had on the residents. If you were lucky enough to be in a place that was well-managed and well-maintained, you could have found a large kind of central building. Uh, Sometimes I think about it as a really big farmhouse. That's what a lot of them started as. And you would have shared your space with lots of different types of people. Um, So there would have been elderly people. There would have been people with a variety of disabilities, um, both intellectual disabilities, uh, cognitive disabilities, and physical disabilities. Uh, You may have been there with uh, a few women who had children with them. 
Uh, sometimes you would have been there with transients who had been injured um, somewhere along the way. Sometimes railroad in- injuries were very common, uh, commonly sent to the poor farm, people who'd gotten hurt kind of riding the rails. And you would have had very little privacy. You would have had three meals a day, a couple of them fairly filling. Again, if the poor farm was good, uh, there are uh, other examples where this did not go quite as well. Um, There would have been a matron and a superintendent on site with you. These are the two people kind of charged with running and managing the day-to-day aspects of the institution. They would have lived in the building uh, with their family. So you would have had a sort of management family and then this much larger kind of construction of all of the people who live there. Some of those residents are long-term and full-time, um, people who spend decades living in a poor farm. Um, but other people are there for an acute crisis. Um, you know, if someone's home burns down and they don't have family in the area, sometimes they end up at the poor farm short-term. The elderly, uh, sometimes widows or widowers who had a spouse die, if their children live somewhere else, it takes them a while to come and pick up mom or dad or, you know, have the conversation about which sibling is responsible for going to get them. And so some of those people are there short-term. But you would have found your days to be, unfortunately, fairly monotonous. Uh, You could have gone outside to the barns and helped with the livestock. You might have been asked to tend the garden. Uh, You might have been asked to do some chores, you know, related to the kitchen or maybe some laundry. But the days would have progressed fairly slowly and routinely, and they would have echoed kind of a basic farm day, um, but with much lighter work than the actual farm family was doing themselves. There would have maybe been a visitor or two over the course of any given week. Um, Sometimes charities would come and bring books or someone would come and sing songs. Um, Rarely on a Sunday, there would be some sort of religious service. And if people were sick or if you yourself were injured and needed medical care, the day-to-day of that would have been provided by the poor farm staff. But doctors did show up, uh, sometimes fairly routinely, to provide uh, people with actual medical care. And so every day would have sort of trucked along those kind of lines. Um, And if you were not as fortunate to be at a well-run poor farm, you would have found yourself in a situation where things were considerably dirtier and the facilities run down. The meals wouldn't have been as good or as filling. Uh, And so things were kind of, you know, pieced together, stretching the coffee, um, rationing things like butter and sugar and meat, uh, poorer cuts on the table, uh, kind of rundown situation. Uh, But for those people who were fortunate enough to be in a county that took their task seriously of running a poor farm that was considered to be humane uh, and neighborly, then you would have been in much better shape in the poor farm than you would have been kind of out fending for yourself uh, as a panhandler or trying to go, you know, farm to farm to pick up a meal and maybe a little bit of hospitality. So you write that these were mostly white spaces. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they they really were. Uh, there are exceptions. So there are counties that had a, a sort of fully integrated poor farm. And I think the explanation for that 
is that they had very few people of color to ever come to the door to need assistance. And so they handled those on a case-by-case basis. But in counties where we see that the demographics of that place are more diverse, it is rare to see the poor farm reflect all of that diversity. We might see ethnic diversity, but we don't necessarily see a lot of racial diversity. And this becomes particularly clear when you look at the poor farm records from the southern states. Given their penchant for um, vagrancy laws, uh, convict labor, and things of that nature, a lot of the people that we would find in poor farms in other parts of the country uh, who were temporarily unable to work, or let's say just not able to maybe put in a full day's worth of work. Um, In Southern institutions, we don't often find those people in the poor farm. They are in jail. They have been leased out. Uh, They are are not being taken care of in the same sort of public fashion that we find in other places. Um, And so that is a really interesting aspect of the poor farm experience that when you look at the ledgers and you see any sort of poor farm diversity, I know for me, I, I immediately kind of grabbed those records and dug in a little deeper to figure out what was causing that to be the case, if it was just a reflection of the demographics in the county, uh, if it was the management, if it was uh, some unique situation that had caused um, perhaps an integrated building. Uh, We also have poor farms across the country that were used for lots of different types and groups of people, but they segregated those buildings based on space. So we've got people uh, of color living in chicken coops in the backyard or in the basement or in the attic. So they are physically segregating the space of the institution in a way that um, really denigrates and depletes the quality of care and the quality of the living experience for those people. Uh, Not being able to live in the main part of the institution, not being able to sit at the same dinner table. Uh, And in some cases, they would, instead of having a large centralized congregate building, they would have cottages. And so the cottages were an easy way to segregate residents because you could have cottages with all black residents and cottages with all white residents. And they would be responsible for cooking their own meals in those cottages. They would do their own laundry. And so they kept some of those kind of segregated tasks and experiences out of a main building and kind of spooled them out into these separate areas. And so when you see those cottages, often it's uh, it's a clear indicator that what they're doing here at the, in this particular property is making sure that they have a way to segregate the space. And there are definite differences and discrepancies in the quality of care in a lot of those circumstances. One of the the, the many striking things that you point out in the book is that the uh, areas with the largest proportion of former slaves are the least likely to be integrated, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So and just sort of to underline that, that's yeah. a pattern that we see today when we look at, uh, say, a density of Black American populations and generosity of social welfare programs, yes. right? This is a, a long-standing pattern in the North as well as the South, it's worth pointing out. Yes, absolutely. And there were times, too, where some of the records really reflected that as an alternative to admitting Black Americans into the poor farm, there would be some very paltry direct aid given instead. So some of the northern counties would choose 
that as an option. You know, we'll pay out in coal, we'll pay out in groceries, but we're going to try to avoid admitting you into this building. Uh, and so you can kind of see that at work as well. Uh, that became particularly acute when I was looking at records from the 1890s um, and the financial depression of that decade really spiked poor farm admissions for different groups of people uh, that didn't normally need that type of social support from the county. Uh, and so it was very clear that we had some counties who were deciding that they were going to keep the poor farm pretty much predominantly white, even though they had black families in need of relief. And they were going to figure out a different way to provide relief for those people. So if we think about traditional histories of, of evolution of institutional aid to poor populations in the United States, I'm thinking inescapably of Michael Katz and his work. You know, one of the sort of the ways that story is told is that we see the differentiation of institutions coming later in the period, but in, later in history, but in the period in which you're focusing on late 19th, early 20th century, the poor farm it's functioning as an asylum. It's functioning as an old age home. It's functioning as a way to maintain uh, seasonal labor forces and to keep them healthy and ready for the next season. It's a way uh, they serve as hospitals. They serve as locales for for disabled people. Can you can you talk? How do you how do you think about sort of the the, the congeries of populations and how these institutions functioned and what it must have been like to try to manage that complexity? Um, what what should we know about that 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 sort of all encompassing institution before they wind up dividing out later in history? You know, it's interesting because the poor farm is the reason they end up dividing out. It's this right. real driving factor because the the clearinghouse method of having all of these different types of people together really draws some negative attention to poor farms as a group. Um, so, you know, not teasing out that some are fine and some are not, but just this kind of general reputation for being miserable places. And that starts with child welfare. So the kids are the first reason why people start to say, now, wait a minute, we can't have all of these types of people living in the same building together and sharing rooms and, and being alongside each other all the time. Because what counties had was this one kind of clearinghouse institution where all of these types of people ended up. And so kids and kids with parents became the first kind of shot across the bow for this is a situation that is no longer acceptable. So the first step was to sort of work to tease the children out of poor farms. And it worked okay. It, it wasn't a complete success. But the, the pitfall there was that children were frequently at the poor farm with a parent, Right. So they had, you know, they were there with a mother who had just given birth. They were there because a father had deserted or a mother had gotten sick and died. And so the dad doesn't have anything, you know, can't self-sustain a family. And so the short-term solution is, as opposed to homelessness, we're going to go to this place and figure it out. And it's shocking how many parents actually left the poor farm with their children, uh, it is not necessarily a dumping ground where I come here, I leave you here, and then I go back out into the world. So they're that sort of first group that gets that attention. And then slowly over time, it sort of works its way into other subgroups of the poor farm population. So I talk a lot about mothers and mother's aid, that there's this drive to get both single and married women out of the poor farm with their kids by putting a special emphasis on assistance that will allow them to stay in their own home. 
And then, you know, we move into different types of groups uh, like the tubercular. Having them in a congregate institution with non-tubercular people is not a great solution. Um, So tuberculosis asylums, asylums for the epileptic, uh, asylums for people who were classified at the time as being feeble-minded. Those tended to be very complicated spaces, um, sometimes for children only, then sometimes for both children and adults. They fill faster than poor farms can empty. And the same is true of asylums for the insane. Those places, once they start to open and then they start to uh, multiply across a lot of states, you know, you don't just need one, you need more than one. Poor farms have their people in line, you know, like, please let us send so-and-so so that they aren't here. But those places filled so quickly with folks that had been caring for loved ones at home and that was stretching resources thin or they didn't feel like it was safe anymore. Those people kind of get in line first, as do the people that were being held in jails, which is a surprising number. And so they kind of fill the spaces before poor farms necessarily get a chance to really kind of liquidate their population to the right institutions. They also end up in this sort of return cycle where people who have gone to a state asylum or facility and are deemed either harmless or incurable are actually shipped back to the counties for care. And so there's this very strange sort of revolving door of counties trying to get people into specialized institutions and then accepting people back from the specialized institutions where they were sent. And so there's never this moment where there's a clear kind of, okay, we've managed to send these people to this type of institution and these folks have gone over here. The waters continue to be fairly muddy. Uh, well through the early 20th century. And that type of management that's required there, I mentioned in the book, there's no training for that. Uh, You know, the reason that poor farms often just hired good farmers was because the idea that you're going to find someone to take poor farm salary, first of all, and then have experience working with all of these different types of people is an impossible task. Um, So they tended to pick either the person who put in the lowest bid to run the institution, which has unfortunate consequences sometimes, but sometimes they just picked someone who they knew to be a respected farmer. And that person could at least handle the fiscal responsibilities and would sort of adapt and learn how to take care of all of these different types of people. And that process was fascinating to watch play out in the historic records that some people truly took to it and tried very hard to figure out how to make life suitable for all of these different groups of people uh, with mixed success. Um, You know, you've got folks who have been abandoned by family members. You've got people who uh, had functioned at one point independently, who have lost that independence. Um, People who are, um, you know, dealing with different forms of addiction. Uh, There were definitely some problems with alcohol, the occasional record about someone that had an opioid addiction. Uh, And so those people are all kind of funneling in and out. And so managing those people uh, is is a tall order that I think um, people who did it well should be sort of celebrated and remembered kindly. 
It's it's one of the things in in reading, and particularly the the section of the book in which you talk about the challenges of effective management of a poor farm. That that not not to assign your next book project, but that really <laughs> did feel like that's a book I would like to read. Right, sort of looking at variation in uh, how people approach that task and who succeeded and who failed, and what lessons there are from that. So. Uh, there you go. More evidence that the easiest thing in the world is is working on somebody else's research agenda. Yes, and maybe someone will listen to this and say, "Aha! Like, off I go there we into go. The... That's the project." Yes. Um, so, Megan, as as we work our way toward concluding, you 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 point out that. Uh, uh, from its peak, we, we start to see the, 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 the decline and transformation of the institution, as you've just described. And then by the time we get to the 1930s, give or take, we really do start to see them disappearing from the landscape. Can you talk a little bit about why, what's going on in, in that period, and why do we not see widespread poorhouses and poor farms today? That physical disappearance is literal, right? Yeah. They, they, yeah. yeah, they actually do disappear. The, I think the thing that sort of carries that transition through is that these had been primarily local institutions. They were locally run and managed. The issues of state oversight is a real mixed bag. Because the state doesn't pay for local poor farms, their ability to dictate and manage what went on in that space is very limited. So they give it a, a good effort, but it's always limited by the fact that they don't spend any money there. And so their power is is shortened by that situation. But by the 1930s, obviously the need becomes greater than many counties were equipped to handle. And they had seen declining poor farm populations during the 1920s. And the demographics of the poor farm had changed considerably from kind of where we pick up in the book in the 1870s and 1880s. The population had gotten older. It had become predominantly male. And it had sort of evolved into a lot of um, men who were unmarried or divorced or separated who had no immediate family to rely on for care. So it's an aging population. And so the poor farms had kind of adjusted over time to, to try to deal with that. And then the 1930s hit and we have young families and people of lots of different demographics all over again who are in need of assistance. But that infusion of federal funds that begins to come in the 1930s brings with it different types of oversight. And one of the specific uh, kind of little side sections of the Social Security Act is that recipients of that money cannot live in a county institution. So counties, many of them see an opportunity with this, that if they can get enough people to accept Social Security get them out of the poor farm, they can close the poor farm. They can kind of scrap the idea that local relief and local welfare is a heavy expense that they have to bear. And so they try to figure out ways to put people in nursing homes that are opening, uh, in boarding homes. They put them in apartments that are sort of shared living space. And the incentive of Social Security does invite some family members to reclaim an older person if that check is going to come with them to help offset the expense for care. It's also a moment where agriculture is changing. 
So one of the, the constants across poor farms is that it's an operating farm. And so the daily ins and outs of life there echo the daily ins and outs of a farm, but the management does too, and the equipment and the technology. And that is changing at the same time that we've got more federal funding and federal intervention coming for different components of the welfare system. It's, you know, this sort of new build out of a welfare system. And so counties looked at the books and made a sort of concerted decision. Are they going to continue to be farmers? Is this institution that the county owns and runs going to continue to be a farm? And if so, are they going to pay for the input? Are they going to pay for the equipment? Are they going to pay for the chemicals? Are they going to pay for the new seed, the hybrid seed? Are they going to do all of these modern agricultural things that are required for farmers during this period at the same time that they're managing a changing institutional population where there are different opportunities um, for those people to potentially leave or bring with them different set of funds and challenges. The other issue that they had was the physical space that they occupied. Um, a lot of the buildings are multi-story, some of them three and four stories tall. They do not have elevators. So when they're dealing with this elderly population, people who have mobility challenges, uh, it had been fairly isolating for some of those people. You know, when we think of modern nursing care, we think of either a single story institutional building or a multi-story building that has elevators and elevators that are wide enough for beds and wheelchairs and mobility devices. And poor farms did not easily make that change. And counties that tried um, struggled. They sometimes knocked the old building down and used the property itself for a new nursing home. Uh, they made changes. And so they, they do adjust if they keep a poor farm and they decide to stay in that sort of business. There are physical adjustments and spatial adjustments that they make uh, to try to kind of adapt to the times. Uh, and the healthcare needs are changing as well. Older people, as people got older and lived longer in institutional care, um, they needed different types of health care. They needed more than just a doctor who came by every couple of weeks to check everyone. And so poor farms are also not necessarily well suited to those needs. It's easier and more accommodating for people to be closer to town or in town uh, and not so much maybe, you know, four or five miles out of town at a crossroads somewhere that made perfectly fine sense when you had a country doctor who was making the rounds less useful when you have people using cars and things to try to get from place to place and office visits that become kind of part of basic healthcare requirements. So all of these different things happen at kind of a confluence, a, an interesting moment in poor farm history that caused hundreds of them to close during the 1930s uh, and into the early 1940s. So the ones that remain uh, end up being a little bit more hidden than perhaps they had really been during their kind of heyday, uh, sort of forgotten about out of the way places. Um, but I always run into people who know exactly where their county poor farm was, or <laughs> they know someone who lived on poor farm road, or the poor farm has now a golf course, or the poor farm is where, um, you know, the county airport is today or a park. And so that space is very much still in kind of public hands in a lot of places, 
Uh, and so I'm always, it's always fun to talk about poor farms in public because people have um, very specific, tangible memories, especially people of a certain age. Uh, they, they remember that space. They remember some of the people who live there. Uh, my own grandparents lived down the road from their county poor farm when I was a kid. And I remember the building. It was gothic in style. It was very formidable when you were a little kid. Um, but my grandpa used to take a guy out of the poor farm uh, to help with the horses. Uh, the gentleman had Down syndrome, but he was really good with animals and he enjoyed working with them. So my grandpa paid him and he would come and help take care of the horses on my grandparents' farm. Uh, and so I have very clear memories of that. And so it's interesting for people to contextualize the the longer history of something that they were familiar with in their own communities. This is the New Books Network, and you have been listening to Megan Burke talk about her fascinating new book, The Fundamental Institution, Poverty, Social Welfare, and Agriculture in American Poor Farms, uh, new out from the University of Illinois Press. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Uh, Thank you, Stephen. It was lovely to speak with you.